This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, editorial director of The Fader. Three years ago, Lucy Dacre started playing a song called Thumbs at her concerts. It was spare but weighty, a violent fantasy backed up by little more than a thin synth line. In the song, Dacre's fantasized about physically hurting a friend's mostly absent father as revenge for the mental anguish he'd caused his daughter, singing I would kill him if you let me. Dacus's devoted fans fell for the song, but she insisted that they leave their phones in their pockets while she played it, to keep the experience special and intimate. And remarkably, through two years of touring, they agreed. A Twitter page that asked every day whether or not Dacus had officially released the by then almost mythical song was finally given cause for celebration this March, when the track appeared on streaming services. Thumbs is now the centerpiece of Home Video, a striking third album on which the Richmond, Virginia-raised singer-songwriter throws herself into her past, reliving often uncomfortable moments from adolescence through college, telling personal stories with impressive clarity and compassion. And while the songs are as emotionally resonant as they were on her previous albums, 2016's No Burden, 2018's Historian, and the same year's self-titled EP as Boy Genius with Phoebe Bridges and Julianne Baker, there's also wit and levity on home video. Shortly before the album's release, I called Dacus at home in Philadelphia, where she moved shortly before lockdown swept across the state, to talk about the way her relationship to a song changes before it's released, the challenges of writing autobiography, and her unlikely spiritual journey to tarot. Thank you for making time to do this. Yeah, same to you. Of course. No, I mean, I've wanted to speak to you for a while and this just seems like the perfect time. I got to see you live like two years, three years ago at South By. I might be getting this wrong. I think you went on almost immediately before Andrew WK. We went on right after him because I remember he was like covered in blood or sweat or but something had happened to him and then he was backstage. He was moist. I don't know with what, but that was alarming. Sometimes it's best not to ask what kind of material Andrew WK is covered in. <laughs> that was the South By that we played 17 shows in five days. Jesus, how? I don't know. And I don't know if I ever like totally recovered <laughs> from it. And then we had to tour for like two months after that. It was like not a good idea, but in some ways fun. Fun as a memory, but not at the time. Yeah, fun as a memory. Mm, good sentence. Well, speaking of which, your new album. Congratulations. Thank you. I think it's a, it's a wonderful record. But perhaps most importantly, it's been, uh, it's been three months since you released Thumbs, which must be a weight off your mind and your Twitter notifications. Yep, I'm glad that people finally have that. They're sated. I'm nervous to play it live again because I was playing it live for so long, but with no expectations. Now people have heard it and I feel like it's going to renew this sense of like panic. Panic? Yeah. <laughs> I felt panic like originally when I wrote it. And so that's why I was playing it live is I wanted to get used to it so that it would stop feeling so intense and I could just like do it by muscle memory. Um, and I got to a place where that was true. I mean, it's always kind of intense, but I could get through it without my throat closing up. And I'm a little worried that it will start closing up again. I read that you said there were moments at the very beginning with that song 
where you felt physically sick. What, what was the impetus to continue to push through that? that you, you were really searching for that thing on the other side. It's a dark song. I feel like it could be triggering for a lot of people. I guess it was for me. But I think the last line of the song is like the whole purpose of the song, just to say that like you don't owe anybody shit <laughs> or like anybody that feels entitled to your time or like they own you is just wrong. So yeah, it, it's ultimately like a victorious, like supportive type of song, but it's just like pretty bleak. As a result of that, do you think that the presence of an audience, especially an audience that loves you so much, helps that more so than just playing it over and over again and getting that muscle memory, actually sharing it with people sort of spreads the load a little? I think so. And like, that's, that's what has happened in the past. Like whenever I write a song and then play it over and over, it slowly starts to feel like it's a collective thing. Like it's not really mine, which is actually a great feeling. And I hope that happens with thumbs. Um, I think it will. It probably will. I would kill him if you let me. I would kill him quick and easy. Your nails are digging into my knee. I don't know how you keep smiling. That's a scary thought, though, to to think that when you go back out and share it again, as you recently announced a tour, which is extremely exciting. But the thought that when you go back out again, it might re-enliven some of these things. Is there any way to, to deal with that except continuing to play the songs and, and hoping that it gets better again? I don't know yet. I'll let you know if I find out. Yeah, I think just like doing it. And then if you sense that it's getting easier, that's cool. And if you don't, maybe just like don't play those songs. Like, I think that a lot of artists feel like they have to play like the favorites or whatever. Um, but I always respect when an artist will like not play a song because they just don't feel it anymore. Cause you know that the artist has self-respect, you know, like I don't want to feel like I'm making somebody go through something at a show. I think that's really cruel when you get mad at an artist for not playing a certain song. Like you don't know what they're feeling in any particular time. I was thinking that in relation to a lot of your music, there's, there's clearly a very, intimate relationship you have with your fans. They relate to these songs on a, on a very personal and deep level. So much so that they even respected your wishes to not have Thumbs recorded, which is, is an incredible thing to run for like two years of touring for people to sort of respect that is, is remarkable. Does that make it difficult when you have a fan base that's committed and involved like that to make sure that when you're writing new music, do you have to remind yourself that it's just for you and that you have to try and take out, take away the idea that somebody else is going to have feelings about it. I guess not anymore. I feel like I've gotten to a place where I can just write for myself. And that's kind of like the best thing to do. Like whenever I try to write with other people in mind, it comes out kind of prescriptive or like I'm fulfilling an assignment and maybe like preachy. It's weird because I care very much about people that listen to me, like as an abstract concept but I also don't care at all <laughs> like when I'm writing something I do not think about other people and I don't really care what people think but I, I like care about their well-being <laughs> it's hard to parse out like what that care actually means is that something you developed over time 
I think it's just been the default, you know, like if people are giving me their time, I feel like indebted in a way to that. I don't know if that's very useful or accurate, but I don't know. It feels like a, there's this weight of responsibility with all that time and attention. Thumbs obviously isn't the only only song on the album that deals with memory. I mean, this is an album about memory, about childhood, about past, about past self in a lot of ways. I've heard you say that a lot of the ideas and, and lyrics that found their way onto the album came out of the blue, like almost unconsciously. Was the decision to write about the experiences you had as a much younger person, was, was that also an automatic decision? Or, or did, was there a moment where you realized that you, you wanted to write about past experiences that you had a bit of remove from? Yeah, I think it was just automatic. I think if I had had the thought like, I want to write about my past, I would have maybe just not done it. Like when I figure out what I'm doing, that is like the beginning of the end. <laughs> like I, I have to kind of like accidentally make things or else I just overthink it. Cause yeah, I'll start to think like, oh, I'm writing a song about blank. And then every lyric from then on out is just like too clever or like too in that specific path. Like it doesn't let the song go somewhere. It's like, I start to box it into something. So whenever I can write a song in like 10 minutes without realizing that it's happening, like that's the best way. Is 10 minutes really when you can get the bulk of a, of a song together? Yeah, I wrote Thumbs in like a 15 minute car ride. I wrote like, I don't want to be funny anymore in like three minutes, like the length of the song. I wrote um, most of Night Shift that way. I was writing a song last night. Whenever I write a song, I'm convinced it might be the last one. But then last night I was writing this song and it felt really good and it took like maybe 30 minutes. What makes you think that each song might be the last? Because I can't decide to write a song. And when I do, like I can literally write a song. It functions as a song. But um, yeah, I have a lot of friends that say this too. It's like, you know, what if I have nothing to say? What if I finally said the last thing that I have to say? And I know intellectually that's probably not true but it's not like i can just come up with something in the moment that sounds terrifying yeah it sucks <laughs> but then i <laughs> this is gonna sound like a weird segue i did mushrooms for the first time like last week <laughs> and i um like had this sense of like you know what if i never write a song again that's okay like i already wrote some and other people will write them. And like, I, you know, I was doing it with some friends and we all felt like connected to each other. And I was like, if my friend Addie writes a song, that's kind of like me writing a song because we're one. Like it was this very heady feeling, but I have tried to like keep hold of that feeling that like everything could stop and it would be fine. And I think knowing that helps me actually feel more like I can write because there's not like this big pressure to keep doing it. That's liberating. So you've had a great week, comparatively. That's really freeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mushrooms are cool. <laughs> you moved from Richmond to, you're in Philadelphia right now, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And so that was just before the pandemic? Yeah, like two months before lockdown. You talked a bit about, in, in another interview, about going back to Richmond after coming back off tour. That was a slightly scary experience. Some of that makes it into the into the album as well. You felt like you stuck out a bit, that people were looking at you differently. How do you cope with that beyond writing about it? Did, it must feel quite alienating. I guess I wasn't coping very well, and that's part of why I moved. 
um, I just wasn't leaving my house very much. And that's kind of funny to say after a year of like all of us not leaving our houses very much, but I don't know, I just didn't want to interact with what people thought of me. And I pretty much only hung out with people that have known me for a really long time. Every time that I met someone new, I was wondering if they were like lying about whether they knew me or not. And like most of the time that was true. Like I would meet people and they would pretend like they didn't know me. And then later they'd be like, actually, I know all about you. <laughs> it's just like this uneven ground to start on for a friendship. And some of those friendships made it through that weird hurdle and other ones, like it just totally ruined it. And I think some people started to try to like get stuff from me, like lift up their careers or um, I don't know, just like imposed more uh, power onto me than I actually have. And I don't know, it made me feel actually really powerless. I don't know, I'm I'm feeling good now, but like in the thick of that, it felt like very hazy. Yeah, I, I can imagine that would be be a real challenge. Does, does moving to Philadelphia give you that clean slate? Kinda, I mean, I haven't really totally lived here yet, but I, you know, at least when I run into people, they're not like my second grade teacher's cousin or my lab partner from biology in junior year of high school or, you know, my ex's best friend's mom. Like everybody has like a weird path to each other in Richmond. Like even people that aren't like in the public eye or whatever. So yeah, it's just like less complicated here. And it's a good city. I, I think that Philadelphia is like, I think Philadelphia is an Aries. I don't know if you're into astrology, but I think Philadelphia is just like the fieriest, most chaotic place that I know of. We're talking about revisiting those memories recontextualizing them that hot and heavy sounds like a bit of a roadmap for the album you, you sing you try to walk away but i come back to the start and it happens over and over and over and over again Does writing some of these memories down help you to escape that feedback loop? Do you even want to escape that feedback loop? Some, yes. And others, like, started a feedback loop. Like, Christine is an example of one that once I wrote it, I kind of got to put that feeling aside because I got to say it to my friend. And that's what mattered. But, like, I feel like Partner in Crime is an example of one that just, like, I wasn't thinking about that person or relationship very much. And now I think about it a lot and I'm trying to figure out what that was. I don't know. I'm also trying to just remember that they are just songs, you know, like, yes, they are about my life and they're very true and there's very real people, but ultimately like they exist outside of my life. And like, I can think about the people in them as just characters. And that's kind of helpful. These songs are quite detailed. There must be a bit of apprehension about people hearing them, especially with what you were saying about going home and realizing that people recognized you. Is it difficult to even let that stuff through and, and not filter out, to, to essentially be as open and honest as possible in songs without fearing that somebody's gonna recognize themselves? 
Yeah, I guess I'm afraid of that, but I've just signed up for it. Like probably everybody that jumps off a cliff into a body of water is still afraid while they're doing it, but they do it anyways. <laughs> like I feel very much not brave. I feel very much like freaked out by the possibility of these people like approaching me or um, I don't know, trying to reawaken some sort of relationship because I've spoken about them. But uh, I don't know. I just don't want to worry about it until it's actually happening. Catherine Lacey wrote that quite beautiful foreword to the album. And she she brings up that truism, which I think is very applicable to the record, that you, you can't go home again. Did writing the record reinforce the idea that you can't fully revisit or inhabit the past? Yeah, I think that everything is changing all of the time. And so even like getting too attached to the things that you love is something that will end up making you upset. <laughs> I guess like just the concept of detachment is like something that's spoken a lot, spoken about a lot in like Eastern spirituality. How like being detached is like the ultimate step, like beyond love, detachment is like even better than love. I don't know, why did it get so heady just now? <laughs> I did not need to go there. But yeah, I think the change is just like a constant or like maybe the only constant is change. I think you can like revisit the past, but even when you do that, it's just like a version of it. And I like, I feel like I have much perspective on my past now, but it's partially because I've probably rewritten what happened in a way that makes more sense to me. There's a narrative element to it. If you can rewrite the story, then that could be the story that sticks for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I've stayed true to life except for the end of Triple Dog Dare, but I think that it's anybody's right to like manipulate their story as they wish. I mean, this is autobiography, right? Nobody should ever assume that the narrator is reliable. That's what's fun about it. Yeah, I think autobiography is fiction. They put our faces on the milk jugs missing children till they gave up your mama was right and through the grief can't fight the feeling of relief nothing worse could happen now nothing worse could happen I've been thinking a lot about the connotations of your music as, as sad. You've talked about this a little bit and it's a kind of reductive idea. There are some slightly uncomfortable sort of connotations with that. And I do think that on this album, there are moments of real, real levity, lyrically and sonically. And there are even moments that seem directly funny to me, like on VBS, when you think about, sing about being convinced that you're going to heaven, but hedging your bets anyway. Was there a conscious effort when writing and producing to punctuate these memories with bits of light or do you think of uncomfortable moments from the past with a sense of humor just anyway? Yeah, I think that humor is really important. I feel like I've been embracing it more. And I think humor and absurdity are so close. And absurdity is always happening. <laughs> like, I feel like absurdity is like ever present. And so if you don't have a sense of humor, you're just going to be confused if you're trying to make sense of everything. Like, it makes no sense that a child would snort nutmeg. Like, that's stupid. And how do you find out about something like that? And it doesn't make sense why parents, like, don't talk to their kids about substances. So, yeah, I think that it also just makes for, like, a... 
easier entry into darker subject matter, you know? I mean, how many comedians are actually so heavy? You know, like, I feel like I've seen so many. There's like, we're in an era of stand-up, I guess, where things are just really emotionally heavy. I don't know, maybe I don't, I shouldn't speak to stand-up because I don't interact with it that much. But um, yeah, I think that being funny just like makes people feel safer or something. And so you can talk about whatever you want to if people are feeling safe enough to laugh. Do you think that's a mechanism for you as the artist or that it's best as a communication method for your audience or both? I don't know. I, I think it's just like, it's fun for anyone. Like it's fun for me too. It's like, it's healthy to laugh at yourself. Cause like you haven't been serious for your whole life. You know, like part, part of like reflecting on childhood is like, that embarrassment that is so informative. Nobody is a fixed, like perfect version of a human being. So I don't know, I think you just have to laugh. I'm intrigued by this idea of, of embarrassment, being embarrassed by your past self. Cause you seem on the record to really overcome that. The first time you sing, can't go back to who I was before I met you, can't undo what I've done and I wouldn't want to which is a pretty huge moment on a record where you're trying to sift through old memories and recontextualize things. Is that new for you? Is it new for you to realize or to, to consciously try and live without regret or shame or em embarrassment even for the smallest things? I think that like embarrassment is actually new for me. I was embarrassed in like fifth grade of my parents and maybe a little embarrassed in middle school, but I used to like be really into God and I thought for sure the rapture was going to happen like any second. And I was like, well, I don't have to endure life that much longer because God's just going to fish me out of here and take me to heaven. So I had like a very immediate sense of life. And I, I think that served me well, actually, in high school. Like I just wasn't worried about what people thought of me because I only cared what like God thought of me. <laughs> And I think a lot of my friends took that as like self-confidence when really I was just like dissociating and like putting that part of my identity like into the divine or something. So it's actually been like a new feeling to look back and feel embarrassment. And I've been like kind of regarding it from a distance and realizing that I kind of like that feeling of being embarrassed because like, yeah, it keeps you humble and it shows you that you've changed and I think it makes you a more compassionate person to other people when you realize that you've been an embarrassing person. It makes you less judgmental. You've managed to escape the loop of judging your past self. I suppose when you listen through to the record, there aren't moments at which you're casting judgment on yourself or looking back with any sort of degree of, um, of like malice on your old self. I think judgment is inescapable. Like you have to make judgment calls every day. I guess what you're talking about is just like judgment in terms of like. Almost like divine judgment, but with you as the divine one, I guess. Yeah, that is a way to think about it. I love that. I've actually gotten into tarot in the past couple of years and it's been like a nice way to interact with abstract concepts and like the divine, I guess, but in a really tangible way. And there's a card in the deck that's called judgment. And it's just about having a sense of reality where like you shouldn't wait for something to happen to give you more information the card is like telling you to make your decision based off of what is actually true now and like put hope aside like hope isn't even useful 
some days. Like you should just look at what is actually true. So I don't know if that's like connected to whatever your question was, but felt relevant. I love it either way. Did your interest in tarot grow as you you used to identify as a Christian agnostic was, was the way you put it for a while, right? Did these two things sort of uh, meet in the middle that as, as you lost the Christian agnosticism, this sort of sense of the divine came from somewhere else? I think like pretty far after I stopped referring to myself as any type of Christian, I had a friend, Colby, come to my house and they had a deck of tarot cards and they asked to do a reading and I'd never gotten one and I always thought that they were satanic I didn't even know what it was I just knew categorically that I wasn't supposed to interact with it and I finally did and it was fine you know and like every time I've been able to do that feels like such a coming home to myself where I realized that something that I was taught would be dangerous to me actually isn't it's just like a little way to make the world feel safer In fact, the opposite is true. Like, I feel like I've gotten a lot of insight and um, structure and it's been a really good way to get to know my friends, like doing readings for them. I recommend it. I know some people are like categorically not into astrology or things like this. And at one point in my life, I wasn't interested either, but I think that it helps you put words to things because like the vocabulary is limited. And like, I don't know, sometimes people don't know how to talk about like what is deep within them and you need to like pull it out by some means and the cards help to do that. But it's present tense, not past or future tense for you. It's it's expressing something that, or finding out about something that exists right now. It's a way to express that. Yeah, I mean, you can do readings about the past and the future, but the past and the future don't really exist. <laughs> They're just ideas. Damn. <laughs> this has been really heady. I didn't know what to expect of this podcast. Uh, we've been really doling out some some sentences. Yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't necessarily planning to be that heady either, but um, but yeah, I think the album calls for it. I, I do think that. I found myself really interested in the idea on this record of, of just reliving things. I always thought, you know, that... Um, there's this idea that like certain people have um they, they use perfume for like three month periods. So that if they ever want to relive that three months in their life, they just have to spray it once and then they can just be there. And something about the olfactory senses is um is the most powerful for memory, apparently. I've always thought that about memory generally, but I've I thought about music. So you can make a playlist for a certain time in your life, you can revisit it and then you can re exist there. I'm not willfully just getting heady now. I'm just like, but every time you open that box and you expose it to light, it's it fades a bit, right? You 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 keep the jewelry in the box so that it does, it's not exposed to light. There must be something about revisiting these memories that, as much as bringing them back up and making them even more pronounced or sharp in your mind, that it also, again, for either good or bad, kind of dulls them. Yeah, I think that in some ways making art that is based on the past is like sacrificing a memory and like giving it over to a new form. Like you're giving it new life, but you're remaking it. And so it isn't gonna stay the same. I might not even be able to track that. Like that's something that has throughout my life given me stress that like I would just start to be wrong and not realize it. Or like I would start lying to myself without realizing it. 
But I've realized even though that does happen, there's literally no way to stop it. So like you might as well get the most that you can out of your life experience. Like I still feel better trying to look back and recontextualize than I think many people in my life like fear their past or like worry that remembering things will make them revert to who they used to be or like I don't know I don't want to fear the past I don't want to fear anything <laughs> and so I'm like down to have a staring contest with any of that weird stuff like I would have a staring contest with my past self and probably enjoy that that's brilliant uh if you could pick a song for us to to play the podcast out with from the record what would it be honestly i'm gonna say first time because i realized that i wish it was a single why wasn't that song a single it's the most singly of the whole record what i don't i don't know but uh yeah that's a fun one perfect okay that's what we'll do then uh lucy thank you so much for making time yeah same to you thanks alex That was Lucy Dacus in conversation with The Fader. Dacus' new album, Home Video, is out now via Matador. Our engineer is Tony Giambroni, and our associate producer is Salvatore Mackey. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. Remember to follow The Fader interview wherever you listen to podcasts, and keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then. <laughs>